All right, good morning. This is going to be an in-depth lesson that will pertain to bitterness and tribulation doctrine, and this is going to clarify much misunderstanding on the most well-known text on bitterness in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. And I'm going to be live streaming and archiving these sermons to uh, YouTube and as well as sermon audio, and uh, I'm going to start live streaming at 9 a.m. Mountain Time uh, for, for a while now. Um, we'll see what happens, but for ne- for, the, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be doing 9 a.m. And then uh, if you enjoy this content, you know, share these lessons with your friends and family, and uh, you can hear more of my teaching on Final Five Bible Radio on Fridays at 8 o'clock a.m. and 8 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time. And this is lesson number five on the subject of the biblical definition of bitterness, and I am deliberately being very thorough on these lessons in this subject in the hopes that Everyone who listens to these lessons will clearly understand the biblical definition of the word bitterness and hopefully never again condemn someone of being bitter who in reality is not bitter. And in the last four lessons, we've gone through all 65 mentions of the word bitter in the Bible. And now that we've gone over every single verse, let me ask you a question. Where in the Bible is the term bitter ever defined as having feelings of frustration, being upset over an injustice that happens to you, uh, something where you can't forget or you struggle to forgive and forget. Uh, Where in the Bible has bitterness ever been defined as someone who, you know, talks about something negative that happened to them, you know, they talk about it to other people. You know, that's the general perception of bitterness, but never one time in your Bible is the term bitter ever in reference to any of this. And yet this is how it's almost always preached. And so in that first lesson, you probably thought I was somewhat arrogant when I said uh, virtually everyone gets this subject wrong. But do you see now why I said that? The reason why I said that is because virtually everyone gets this subject wrong. (laughs) You tell me. I've gone through all 65 mentions of the verse. What am I supposed to say? Uh, everyone preaches it this way, and yet none of the verses have anything to do with this, right? So what am I supposed to say? Uh, the general perception is the way you've always heard it, and yet this is not at all the definition of bitterness according to the Bible. And because virtually everyone's definition of the word is wrong, as a consequence, virtually everyone's identification of a bitter person is wrong. And people who are genuinely vexed, these, these terms here would be a good word that would describe all of this is not bitter. A good word that would describe all of this is someone who is vexed. Someone who is vexed in their spirit, vexed in their mind, vexed in their heart. Okay? And people who are genuinely vexed by an injustice are often further abused by people who condemn them for being bitter when they're not. And as we saw from the Bible, the person with the kind of bitterness that is sinful, because the first definition and the second definition are not sinful. The third definition is usually sinful, as we saw most of the time, in general, is a sinful thing, strife and anger. And the person that has the sinful kind of bitterness is the abuser, not the abused. All right? Most people think of bitterness in terms of a reaction. Uh, Someone did something bad to you, and so in reaction, you know, you're all bitter about it. And they think of it in these terms. People genuinely 
tend to think of bitterness as a reaction, but the biblical definition is more along the lines of an aggression, okay? The transgressor, the one who hurt the other person, uh, is the one who has bitterness. The abuser is the one who is bitter, not the abused. The one who abused this person is the reason why he abused them, the reason why he or she injured that person is because they had inward anger, inward envy, inward strife in their hearts, and all of those things are defined along the lines of bitterness in your Bible, as we saw last week. And so the one who is bitter is not the one who has been abused. The bitter person, if you want to accuse someone of being bitter, accuse the one who hurt the other person, because this guy's the one who's bitter. The abuser is the one who is bitter. The one who is injured naturally goes through a gamut of emotions, but they are not the one with the bitterness, sinful bitterness. They might have unsinful bitterness in terms of sadness, but now we're starting to talk about bitterness along the lines of, you know, sinful bitterness. That's what most people think of when they think of bitterness is they think of something sinful. So the one who's bitter, the one who's sinfully bitter is uh, is the one who abused the other one. The, the injured goes through that gamut of emotions, but they're not the ones with the bitterness. The abuser who injured them is the one who is bitter. And the abused, the one who suffers the injury, is not sinfully bitter, is not bitter, unless their grief turns into a genuine hatred and intent and desire to do harm to the one who injured them. Okay, Then they also become sinfully bitter, and they're just as bad as their abuser in, in those terms, and they need to repent too. But generally speaking, the abused is not the one who is bitter. The abuser is the one who is bitter, and it's the abuser who needs to repent of their bitterness, not the one who's abused. So get it right. Now, there's one verse that I touched on briefly in these lessons that needs a closer look because this is the verse that's virtually always preached in relation to the subject of bitterness, and I believe it is generally uh, misunderstood and misapplied, and that's going to be Hebrews chapter 12. So go to Hebrews chapter 12, and usually when you hear Hebrews chapter 12 preached, it's along these lines, okay? And you're familiar with the verse I'm going to get to, but usually it's preached along these lines, which is incorrect, and what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to first show you the doctrinal interpretation of this passage, which once understood is going to help you uh, see clearly what the practical application of this passage is. All right. So Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll go ahead and we can read the whole passage, but we'll start in verse 11. It says, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, okay, but grievous, grievous, all right. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, here we go. Here's the passage that does always preached, that you've probably heard preached all your life, just like I've heard preached all my life. Here we go. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, 
who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. All right, so there's certainly practical instruction here that can apply to everyone, but doctrinally, the book of Hebrews is aimed primarily at believers who are going to be alive during the tribulation period. All right? Now, many of you understand that. Maybe some of you don't. But primarily, you start getting into these last books of your New Testament, and you're dealing with a lot of tribulation, end-time doctrine. All right? The tribulation is going to be a time where salvation is going to be somewhat different than it is in the church age. There's going to be some similarities, but there's also going to be some differences. And real briefly, I'll explain that. Uh, Salvation at that time, in the last days, after the rapture, is still by grace through faith, okay? But the key difference is that no one who believes on Jesus after the rapture of the church, no one who believes on Jesus at that time is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Other than the 144,000, no one after the rapture of the church is sealed with the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is how you and I are joined spiritually to the Lord and are one spirit with Christ, and that in and of itself is a type of marriage to Jesus Christ. We're one spirit with him, okay? So we're betrothed, if you will. That's the illustration that Paul uses. And tribulation saints are never called the bride of Christ in your Bible because they are never likened to being married to Christ. In the Gospels and in these end-time epistles, they're always likened to virgins who are friends of the bridegroom. They're not the one who marries the bridegroom. They're friends of the bridegroom. So already, right there, you have a difference between tribulation end-time saints and believers right now. One, one group is likened to a bride. Another group is likened to friends at a wedding. Okay, uh, The rapture of the church is where Christians become one flesh with Christ, meaning they get the same resurrection body that Jesus has, not direct duplicate clones of Jesus, as it's sometimes taught, but you get a resurrection body, a body that will never die, a body that will live forever like Jesus' body. You're one flesh in that respect, and so the rapture is a type of the consummation of a marriage, and so, you know, rapture is a really good word for it, okay? So it's a type of a consummation of a marriage where you become one flesh. Then the people who believe on Christ after the rapture, Okay, so after the rapture happens, people that believe on Jesus and trust Jesus as their Savior after the rapture, they're not part of the bride, they're not part of the church, they are not sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that's the key difference between salvation here and salvation over here. The people over here are not sealed with the Holy Spirit, which means they can lose their salvation. You and I can't lose our salvation. Why? Because we're sealed unto the day of redemption. Okay? These people aren't. And that is a major difference in salvation right there. Um, These people that believe on Christ, they can be born again. That's fine. Uh, And they're even anointed with the Holy Spirit. You get that in uh, 1 John 2, but they're not sealed with the Holy Spirit. And because they're not sealed, they can fall away and lose the Holy Spirit, and at that point, they're not able to get it back, and they can't, as the Bible says, renew themselves again unto repentance. That is, they cannot get born again, and then lose it, and then get born again, again, and again, and again. Okay? Um, The doctrinal understanding 
of all of this clarifies the peculiar salvation by works sounding verses that you find in, in the Gospels and in books like Hebrews, James, you know, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 2nd uh, Peter, the book of Revelation. Every time you come across some of those salvation by works types of verses, those are applying to believers at this time, okay? Now, I don't know why Christians can't get it through their heads that there's going to be believers at this time, so don't you think that God would have put some books in the Bible for these people? <laughs> I mean, Christians are so arrogant in the church age. They just think, the whole Bible's for me doctrinally. There's nothing for anybody else. It's all for me. <laughs> no, there's books. That the Old Testament was for the people prior to the cross. You've got a number of epistles and books that are directly doctrinally for you during the church age. But don't you think that Jesus is going to give some scriptures for some of the people that are going to be alive at this time? It's going to apply to them directly? Of course he did. And you find those toward the end of your New Testament. All right? Uh, salvation is not by works per se in the tribulation period. Salvation is still by grace through faith. But the difference is the individual has to work to keep his salvation. Or as Jesus puts it, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13, that is not Pauline doctrine, okay? So all of the professing Christian denominations that teach that you can lose your salvation are applying tribulation passages to Christians in the church age. They're taking books of the Bible that belong over here, and they're trying to apply it to you here, and they're getting their Bible backwards. And once you get all these proper divisions in place, or if you want to call it uh, dispensations, if you will, once you get those in place, your Bible begins to make a whole lot more sense. So when you read the book of Hebrews, it's important to read it. Okay, let me s slow down there. When you read the book of Hebrews, it's important to read it from the standpoint of someone who is alive during the end times and has believed on Jesus after the rapture of the church has already happened. So when you read the book of Hebrews, the book of James, the book of 2 Peter in, in particular, the book of uh, Matthew and, and books like that, try to read it from the standpoint of somebody right here that's going through all of this and is, has missed the rapture of the church. It'll make a whole lot more sense. All right? Bear in mind that after the rapture, there are seven years of the beginning of sorrows, and then there's three and a half years of a great tribulation. And if you've never heard that before, uh, you can check out some of my other videos on prophecy, or you can listen to the Truths Melee podcast episodes that I did on that subject. Uh, there's a link in the show notes of the YouTube. You can check that out when you get a chance. Now, let's say you are a Jew who's alive during the end times, okay? The church has been raptured. And let's say it's been two years since the rapture of the church. And let's just say that you are, you are here, <laughs> I'm not speaking to born-again Christians right now because there's no way that you're going to miss that rapture whether you believe in it or not. Uh, but let's just, you know, speculate. Let's just say, you know, in your mind's eye, let's pretend that you were alive during the end times. And let's say the rapture happened two years ago, okay? And it's the end times. And you're living during what Jesus called the beginning of sorrows. Uh, you heard the preaching of the 144,000 and you believed and you repented, okay? At this point, the main things that concern you at this time are ideally trying to survive to the second advent and not die. <laughs> ideally, you want to live physically. You don't want to get killed by something in this time period, albeit that's going to be hard to do. Um, the other, another thing that concerns you at this time is going to be living uprightly 
And also, the other main thing that's going to concern you at this time is waiting for Jesus' return. Okay? That's a big deal. Having faith in and waiting patiently for Jesus' return are very important themes that repeat over and over and over in these tribulation epistles, tribulation books. The circumstances in the world at this time are going to be bad and troublesome, okay, as we know. And between the persecution, between the wickedness and the natural disasters, there's going to be plenty of cause for an individual to be very sorrowful, okay? You say, well, what does all of this have to do with bitterness and Hebrews chapter 12? Well, number one, remember that the primary definition of bitterness in your Bible is sadness or sorrow, all right? And uh, number two, sadness and sorrow is the context of Hebrews chapter 12, where we've been reading. And if you read Hebrews chapter 12 and the entire passage, the context that you're reading about is sorrow. The, The chapter opens up with talking about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He endured the sorrow, the sadness of the cross, the grief of the cross, the the bitterness of the cross, if you will. So it's contrasting joy with sorrow. And then also the Bible uh, in this passage, it talks about finishing a race. Let us run with what? Patience, the race that is set before us. That's very important for a believer in the end times. They need to have patience. Remember, it talks about you've heard of the patience of Job, right? And the Bible talks about the uh, over there in uh, James chapter 5, I believe. And uh, patience is going to be a big part of the end times. The Bible there talked about in uh, verse uh, 7, if ye endure chastening. Well, where have you heard that word endure before in the context of the end times? Matthew 24, 13, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be, in, shall be saved. Chastening is going to have to be endured. There's going to be a patience that's involved in order to finish the race and get to the finish line. Um, Also, the Bible there in Hebrews chapter 12 talks about considering Jesus. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and what? Faint in your minds. You fall away. You faint. You give up. So you see this theme repeating over and over and over, the need for patience in the midst of sorrow, okay? In the midst of tribulation, just like Job had to go through, all right? Verses 1 through 11 talked about the Lord's chastening here in Hebrews chapter 12, which is the whole point of what the end times is. It's God's chastening of Israel for the crucifixion and rejection of Jesus Christ. And you can throw in there the crucifixion, or I mean the uh, chastening of the rest of the world for their persecution of the Jew and everything else. But basically, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. And so it's God's chastening of the nation of Israel for their rejection of their Messiah. And the Holy Spirit in this passage is reminding the end-time Jew specifically that even though things are bad, even though things are bad, God's chastening is a good thing, and it is for our profit, quote, that we might be partakers of his holiness. All right? Now, that applies to chastening in your life as well. But again, specifically, doctrinally, this is applying to an end-time Jew who's believed on Jesus. God says, you're going through all of this. It's my chastening. But don't worry, it's for your benefit. And they need to believe that by faith. And, the, and then because of that, he says in verse 12, Wherefore, because chastening is for your benefit, wherefore, 
lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. In other words, cheer up. (laughs) And this is meant to encourage someone who's living during these troublous times. The the Bible says in verse 14, follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall what? See the Lord. See the Lord. All right, so now we're starting to get into the context, the idea of the second advent in Jesus Christ coming back physically to where someone can see him visibly. All right, and he says you're going to need holiness or else you're not going to see him. See, it's very important that a person remain upright in these days. And, uh, the, thing, and, and the thing is, if they don't live right, then they could, and they fall into sin and wickedness and take the mark of the beast, they'll be rejected by Jesus at his return. Remember Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said, Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will be received. But Jesus will say to many at that time, Depart from me, I never knew you. Remember that in Matthew chapter 7? In other words, talk is cheap in the end times. It's not just, well, I believed in Jesus, you know, but I never, I never did anything for God, I never lived for God, I never did right. You know, you can get away with that in the church age. You can trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and then live like the devil for the rest of your life, and you'll reap what you sow, but you'll still go to heaven. Why? Because you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's not going to work in the last days. They're going to have to have holiness or else they're not going to see the Lord. Remember Matthew 25, where the criteria for being accepted as a sheep instead of a goat is one's works of love towards God's people? Remember that? Matthew 25, that's what we're talking about right here. All right? That is not the criteria for salvation in the church age, but that will be the criteria in the last days. And the believers who don't maintain their holiness will likely end up taking the mark of the beast when it shows up at the start of the Great Tribulation. All right? So the Bible says here in verse 15, looking diligently. Looking diligently for what? Well, the answer is, what would these people be looking diligently for? For the Lord's return, of course, in the context. It's the Lord's return. Now, the people at this time are looking diligently for the Lord's return, and that can be certainly the second advent, but there's also a conditional rapture for tribulation saints that will occur roughly around the middle of the beginning of sorrows. And they can get in on that conditional rapture if they're watching and if they're ready. And this uh, rapture is a conditional rapture and explains the passages that have perplexed a lot of people in Matthew chapter 25 concerning the wise and the foolish virgins and also numerous passages in Matthew, Mark, you have uh, Mark 13, you have uh, Matthew 22, Matthew 25, Luke 12, Luke 21, and uh, Song of Solomon chapter 5. All of those chapters make perfect sense in the context of a conditional rapture that Jewish believers can get in on if they're watching. And if they're not watching, if they're not paying attention, and if they're not looking diligently, it'll go right by them, and they'll have to end up going through the end times. This is an opportunity, a last chance to get out before the Great Tribulation starts. And if you want information on that... I have all of that laid out in my book, The Time of the End, which you can get on Amazon Kindle or on the Final Fight Bible Radio store. And uh, that's not so much of a sales pitch per se. The point is, I just don't have time to go into all the details of that in this lesson. So if you want that information, you can get it in that book. All right. Verse 15, he says, looking diligently. 
All right, well, what happens if they're not looking diligently for the Lord's return? Well, he says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, you'll see right there that it has a semicolon after that. And that tells you that you're going to be giving a list of things that are going to link, link together. Now, notice the lests in this passage in verse 15 and 16. He says, number one, you're supposed to be looking diligently. End time believer, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Number two, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Number three, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. All right, let's look at this first one. Number one, they're supposed to be looking diligently. Why? Number one, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, this isn't God ceasing or failing to extend his grace to somebody. That's not what that verse is saying. This, a man who fails of the grace of God is someone who, it's the man himself failing of God's grace or falling away from God's grace, if you will. God is not at fault. The fault is on the individual who stopped believing. God's grace is, is extended towards us and towards believers, and towards the believers of this time. God doesn't withhold His grace. His grace is extended. People just have to uh, access it by faith. The Bible says in Romans 5, verse 2, it says we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And it's not going to be any different at this time. A person will be able to access God's grace so long as they don't fail in their faith. Right? As long as they maintain their faith, Things will be fine, okay? They'll be able to get through this if they maintain their faith, all right? And uh, so the way a person can fail of the grace of God is by ceasing to have faith. In other words, he quits on God, right? Which is a very serious problem for a tribulation believer. Now, let me ask you this. Why would a person in the end times quit having faith? Why would a person give up on their faith? in the end times. Well, remember, the context is the return of the Lord, and the fact that Jesus is not coming right away and saving this person from all the bad things that are happening around him, it causes this person, naturally, the people that are going to be alive at this time, are going to start fretting or be tempted to fret against the Lord. These people will be tempted to doubt God's love for them. It'll cause these people will be tempted to question whether Jesus is going to return at all if they're going through that time. By the way, let me just point this out. Uh, I can't help but wonder if a lot of end time believers who pick up various books on uh, tribulation prophecy, you know, they realize, oh my goodness, I missed the church rapture, I'm alive in these last days, and they start getting, you know, Tim LaHaye books, and they start getting all these books on prophecy, and they start hearing about how the tribulation is seven years long. <laughs> and so, I wonder what these people are going to think when they hit the seven-year mark, expecting Jesus to return, when in reality, that's going to be the start of, their, of the great tribulation. Like, Things have been pretty bad, white horse, red horse, black horse. <laughs> and they're thinking, man, this is crazy. World War III at least has happened. You know, and so they're thinking, man, we've got to be getting to the end of this thing. It's a six, six years, 11 months, man. Jesus is coming back next month. Boom, we hit the seven-year mark. Jesus is coming back any minute. But what they don't know is the end times are actually ten and a half years long. And they haven't even seen nothing yet. You know, that's going to cause some people to start questioning 
the return of the Lord. He was supposed to come back at the seven-year mark. That's what everybody has taught for, for 2,000 years, virtually. But he didn't. Because, it, because the beginning of sorrows is seven years. The Great Tribulation is three and a half years. Again, if you want that information, you can look it up in this book. I have all the Bible references for it right there. Check it out when you get some time. All right. Now, the admonition to wait patiently and the prediction that many are going to give up and quit waiting is repeated over and over in these end times passages. Because that's going to be the number one thing they need to do is wait for the Lord. And the number one temptation is going to be to quit waiting for the Lord and give up. 2 Peter 3.3 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying what? Where is the promise of his coming? See that? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. See that? Context end times. Where is the promise of his coming? Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 45 says, But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him. Maybe ten and a half years. <laughs> he was looking for him at the seven-year mark, but here, ten and a half years later, he's thinking Jesus is never coming back. And uh, actually, he comes back at ten and a half years, and the Lord of that servant comes in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. All right? So think about it. Let's say you're a tribulation believer. And things are getting very, very bad, and life is miserable, and you know Jesus is returning, but every day that goes by is more and more of a burden, and you begin to share Job's sentiment of, my soul is weary of life. And with that in mind, look at this next, uh, uh, this next thing in our list here in Hebrews chapter 12. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. All right, so now we know what the context of this root of bitterness is. Now pay attention to the wording of the verse. Something that began as a root is starting to spring up. Okay? A root doesn't have fruit. But when a root springs up into a plant, it then bears fruit. The root was bitterness in the context of Hebrews chapter 12, and the root in this context is sadness, tears, sadness, sorrow. He's telling them to be joyful as opposed to grieving and sadness. The root here of bitterness is sadness, okay, in the context. Sadness about being chastened of God. Sadness over the horrible circumstances of the world. Sadness about the persecution that these tribulation believers have to endure. But listen, sadness is not a sin. The root of bitterness, the root of sadness, is not a sin. <clears throat> Let me say that again. <clears throat> the root of sadness, <laughs> the root of bitterness, is not a sin. This is not a sin. Alright, now keep listening. The root of bitterness and sadness, the root of sadness, only becomes sin if it springs up into a fruit-bearing plant 
of bitterness or anger towards God. Alright? So I'm going to put uh, bitterness not sin. And up here, we'll get to it in a second, but we're going to have bitterness that is a sin. Okay? But down when the root, just in the root, you're not dealing with sin yet. In other words, their prolonged sadness of a believer at this time, the Bible is warning them about this sadness to be careful about it, lest it become a fruit-bearing plant, poisonous plant. He's saying be careful about it because their prolonged sadness, if not dealt with, can turn into anger towards God if they're not careful. The sprung-up, now fruit-bearing plant is what troubles the person. The fruit of the sprung-up plant is what defiles the person, okay? And the fruit is anger towards God for delaying his coming. It's this bitterness, sadness, is a root that can become a plant that bears this fruit of anger towards God. So this can become this. Sadness can become anger towards God. And that's what the writer is, being, is warning the people of. What are people going to be wondering at this time? What are, why would people be mad at God? What are some of the accusations they'd start to think in their minds and hearts? They'd say, why doesn't Jesus just come already? Why is he allowing all of this to happen? Why is he doing nothing when his own servants are being persecuted and exterminated worldwide? Why is God doing nothing when all of these innocent people are dying and starving? Why, if, if God is just... Why is he allowing all of this injustice? If God is love, why is he allowing all of this misery? Jesus can come back anytime he wants, so why is he waiting? Those are going to be some questions that believers at that time are going to be tempted to think about. And they'll be tempted to think that maybe God doesn't care. They'll be tempted to think that maybe the Bible isn't true and Jesus isn't coming back. Or they'll be tempted to think that maybe God doesn't even exist at all. And many people are defiled by anger that began with sadness and a lack of faith. That even happens in today's day and age. Something bad happens in a person's life. They get sad they, you know, about what happened. They start asking, you know, God, why did you allow this to happen? If you love me so much, why would you allow this in my life? And all this stuff. And that sadness, which is not sin, but that sadness starts turning into a fruit-bearing plant in the and the poisonous fruit that it bears is sinful anger towards God. And when you think of things from the standpoint of the believers in this time, you can see why the Bible urges caution when it comes to this root of sadness, this root of bitterness. They haven't sinned yet with the root, but they need to deal with that root before it grows and manifests the evil fruit of anger, wrath, and strife towards God. So how are they supposed to deal with their sorrow? Because obviously that's the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of bitterness. <laughs> the beginning of sorrows. These people are going to be sorrowful. Shocker. People are going to be sorrowful that are going to be living at this time. So how do they deal with their sorrow, their sadness? Answer, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. That's what he said. Do it. Lift up your hands. Rejoice. They are to fight against sorrow by choosing to rejoice. And you know what it takes to choose to rejoice when you're in a time of sorrow? That takes faith. It takes faith. It takes trusting in God. 
Jesus said this in Luke 6, 22, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Everything that's going to be happening at this time. Verse 23, he says, Rejoice in that day. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. And this can only be done if a person has faith in what Jesus said. He says, For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did they do unto their for in like for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Now, if you've ever gone through something really difficult, some form of persecution or sadness or an injustice, the last thing you want to do is rejoice and leap for joy. <laughs> Trust me. But Jesus said, you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to rejoice when you're suffering injustices and persecution. Why? Because Jesus said, if you have faith to believe that you have a reward in heaven for what you're going through, if you only knew what kind of reper, uh, recompense you're going to get for what you're going through, you would leap for joy. And that's why Jesus on the cross says, for the joy that was set before him endured it. Why? Jesus had faith. <laughs> He believed that there was a crown coming, and so because he believed in the crown, he could endure the cross. And that's exactly what is being taught to these believers at this time. Yes, it stinks. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, you're going through all kinds of misery and sorrow. But if you'll believe that Jesus is going to reward you and that Jesus is going to come back for you, you can make it. You can get through. You can endure. Right? It's faith that will help these people endure. Not their own personality or their own strength. It's faith. The weakest of, of Christians can endure to the end if he'll have faith, if he'll just believe. That's why you read about in chapter 11. Faith, 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 faith. Because that's what's important in these last days. That's what's going to get people to the end. All right? So it's like this. You have the ground here and you have the root of bitterness. Okay? Now everybody preaches that the root of bitterness is sin. You need to rip that root out because you're sinning if you have a root of bitterness. No, you're not. That's a misunderstanding of the passage. That's not what it's saying. This root of bitterness does, isn't what defiles. It is the, uh, the uh, lest any root of bitterness springing up. That's what's going to defile the person, is when the root of bitterness starts to spring up. Lest any root of bitterness... See, they all, everybody misses that verse, springing up. Don't forget that part. That is the most important part. So what, we're, what I'm drawing you here, very t poorly, <laughs> is this rock is essentially likened to a person's faith. Okay? This root of bitterness is sadness over things that are going on. And as long as that rock of faith stays firmly planted over that root, that root of sadness cannot grow into this poisonous plant that's going to defile the person. Man, where did my other marker... Oh, here it is. We'll say that this is a... I don't know, a hemlock or a... What is the uh, berry plant the, that people hang on their holly berries at Christmas time? The poisonous plant, the mistletoe? <laughs> Let's just say this is a poisonous plant is essentially what this thing is. And what has happened here is this person had faith, but their sadness, the constant pressure from the root pushing up against their faith has finally caused their faith to crack and this root of bitterness is sprung up into a plant and bears what kind of fruit? It bears the poisonous fruit of bitterness, anger, 
towards God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Didn't, didn't he say in verse 11 that uh, the chastening is not joyous but grievous, but afterward, if you have faith in your chastening, if you endure your chastening, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. All right, so you have the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You still have sorrow and sadness, but if you'll maintain your faith during that chastening, eventually it'll yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Okay, so that is being contrasted by this. This is the evil fruit of unrighteousness. And what's that? Anger towards God. Sadness, that uh, bitterness that uh, became the poisonous plant of sin and anger towards God. Now this bitterness that wasn't sin has become a sin. And in the context of a tribulation saint in the end times, this is a very serious problem. When a person starts getting angry at God. Why? Because there's going to be a lot of temptation to just fall away. And that's what we're going to get into next. All right? So, uh, but I'll get into that in just a second. So, as long as the root of, of bitterness never gets past the root stage, it's okay. Keep the rock of faith over it. Choose to rejoice in the Lord. And that's why there's also a lot of passages in Hebrews, uh, in the book of Hebrews that talks about fellowshipping with other Christians. Right? Because that's going to be important to be able to maintain their faith in those last days. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then there's the not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together and so much the more as you see the day approaching and all that stuff. Being with other Christians is very important for these believers, especially in the last days. Because they'll be able to encourage one another and exhort one another and tell and encourage one another to maintain their faith. All right, and uh, so uh, keep the rock of faith over that sadness. They need to choose to rejoice in the Lord and keep that root down and try to remove it eventually. Sure, let's face it. Let's just, when we're talking about sadness and let's just apply this to your life a little bit. Sadness doesn't just go away overnight. You have to fight it daily, and sometimes that fight can last a long time. Especially if someone has un- done something unjust to you or messed you up or did something to you, you know, and, and, and you suffered a uh, transgression from someone else and that person hasn't repented, that can create some sadness in your life and that's not going to just go away with a snap of your fingers, okay? That can take a while. That root might be there for a while, okay? And the longer you fight it, the more that root of sadness will eventually wither and go away. But you need to keep the rock of faith over it. Trust in the Lord. Trust in what the Bible says and stick with God. Um, If you allow your rock of faith to break from the constant pressure of the root of sadness, then the root will spring up as the poisonous plant that it is and will bear the fruit of anger towards God. And that's what you don't want. All right. Broken faith is a person who has failed of the grace of God, like I said in the passage. And then anger towards God is that root of bitterness that has sprung up and troubled the person and defiled the person. Usually when this passage is taught, it says, and thereby many be defiled. You're defiling everybody else around you. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that a lot of people get defiled by this. There are a lot of people that get angry towards God. And and they themselves are defiled by what? By their anger. That defiles the individual who's bitter, not everybody around you. That's usually how it's 
taught, but that's not right. Uh, verse 16 says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, we're wrapping up, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So here's the person who quit and traded eternal blessings for temporary relief, and he can't undo what he did. And that'll be a huge temptation for believers in the end times to just give in and go along with the world. Jesus said that they're going to be hated of all men for his name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. And that is Mark or Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. So it's going to be very tempting for these believers at this time to give up, give in, quit being a Christian and just join the world, or quit doing things that cause you to stand out. And there's a, going to be a temptation for these believers to just be an incognito Christian. But they can't do that in these days because faith without works is dead in those last days specifically and won't do a tribulation saint any good. They have to have faith and works of love towards their brethren. And if they just try to, you know, keep to themselves, stay away from other believers, you know, they're just kind of, I'm just going to be an incognito Christian. I'm just going to believe in Jesus myself. That's not going to cut it in the last days. And of course, uh, taking the mark of the beast is going to be a factor also. There's going to be a temptation for them to take that mark. All right, so this fornication that's mentioned here, lest there be any fornicator, um, is likely along the lines of the adultery that James mentioned in his end times context. And what did James say? James 4.4. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. In other words, ye fornicators, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And there's going to be a temptation in these last days to become a friend of the world. And in that context, in James, being a friend of the world involves pursuing your lusts and getting rich at the expense of others. And becoming friends in the world in the last days is going to cost a person his soul. Okay, uh, Mark 8.36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And uh, quite literally, they take that mark of the beast, they're going to get in on the uh, universal basic income and probably have a lot of wealth. But what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? The universal basic income, universal, and lose his own soul. It's going to cost them their soul in those last days. So do you see the connections here in this passage? A person's faith fails and their sadness is not put into check and they quit and they turn back into the world. Their sadness broke their faith, and they turn back, and they turn away from God in the last days, which matches Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 through 39 exactly. Let's see if I've got the interpretation right. Matthew, or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, like I said, we're wrapping up. He says this, Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, your faith, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience. Again, context is these end time believers. What you need is patience. That after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. The way it works in the last days is you perform the will of God, then you wait for the promise, and then you receive the promise. But there's a waiting period between performing the will and receiving the promise. They have to be patient. Okay? Uh, verse 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Again, there it is repeated again. The promise of the Lord's return is mentioned over and over and over because these people need to remember that and have faith in that. 
He that shall come will come and will not tarry. All right. Verse 38. Now the just or the justified shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, in other words, quit having faith and fail of the grace of God. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That person rejected God. And so God rejects him. That's not going to fit in the church age context, but that will fit in an end times context. Verse 39, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, damnation of the soul, but of them that believe to, or unto, if you will, the saving of the soul, right? They believe to the saving of their soul. That they get, basically they get their salvation locked in, if you will, at the second advent. The Bible says there in 1 Peter, as far as you, as far as your salvation, uh, you receive the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul, the moment you believe. That's not true for these guys. They receive the end of their faith, the salvation of their soul, when they've endured to the end. Okay? So uh, what I've given you is the doctrinal application of this root of bitterness passage Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 15. Now that you understand the doctrinal content the practical application of the passage is very simple. You're not wrong for being sad about something that's happening to you or something that's happened to you. You're not wrong for being sad. This is not sin, okay? But don't let that non-sinful root of bitterness, that root of sadness, spring up and become an evil plant of bitterness, an evil poisonous plant that bears the sinful fruit of bitterness, of anger towards God. It breaks your faith, the plant springs up and bears the evil fruit of sin that is anger towards God. So I'll try to conclude these lessons on bitterness next week, and we'll teach the proper way to deal with injustices that will prevent sinful bitterness from setting in. I hope this lesson was a blessing to you. God bless you. Have a good week.